right, so welcome back. Now, in this second segment, I want to turn to two topics that are going to help us kind of dive into uh, looking at how exactly folklore impacts the lives of the folk groups that share it. One is the idea of performance, which means all the stuff that happens when a text is delivered live by a performer to their audiences. The other is the question of authenticity, in which we're talking about whether an item is or isn't a genuine piece of folklore, uh, or even if it's possible to ask this kind of question, really. Now, let's look first at the different aspects of what constitutes a performance of a folk song or a folk music or folk dance, or even things like a joke, proverb, riddle, gesture, folk recipe, medicine, a meme, even, any item of Folklore, I want to tell you, I want to kind of state, involves some kind of performance. Maybe the best way to to dig into this is to start with kind of a basic question. What is it that makes folklore somehow feel like it's alive, right? Or it's organic or like it's viral. Uh, Basically, since the 1970s, folklorists have argued that folklore feels alive and gets its characteristic traits of multiple existence and variation because it's performed live. Uh, more or less, to audiences who participate actively in the performance of the item. This is one of the most important things that folklorists have really theorized, so let's go over it kind of carefully. Here's how we can envision maybe uh, how a performance of any item of folklore takes place. Performance is thought of as a, a live interaction that involves basically four different variables. First is the performer, or group of performers, maybe. Uh, This is the person or group that actually sings the song, right? Uh, The group who are playing the musical instruments, who's dancing the dance. If it's a storytelling session, it's the storyteller. If it's a riddle, then it's the riddler. If it's a joke, it's the joker, etc., etc. Then there's the audience. These are the people who are witnessing or watching the thing being performed, or if it's food, they're the ones who are eating, right? Uh, or somehow taking in or consuming the item in some way. Now, there's something interesting about a folk audience. Unlike maybe like elite cultural forms where audiences are supposed to sit all quiet and polite, right? In the folk song or folk music or folk dance or other folk genres, usually the audiences are supposed to participate actively in one way or another. Sometimes it's by clapping to the beat, right? or hooting and hollering, throwing your hands in the air, singing along, call and response, getting up and dancing, right? It kind of depends on the situation and the genre, but very rarely are audiences just supposed to sit silently and nod and clap lightly as if it was a virtuoso violin performance. Anyway, the third variable in a folk performance is the social and physical setting. This is the space where a song is being sung, a dance is being danced, the time of the day, the day of the week, the month, the season, whatever is going, what time this the, the folklore is happening. It's also all the details about the kind of people who are in attendance. Are they rich or poor or men or women or old or young? How are they arranged? Is it in a circle, in rows? Is it on stage, in a village square, in a building, in a temple, in a house? Right? <clears throat> These are all the factors of a setting that impact somehow the performance of a folk song or dance or any other genre. Finally, folklorists have theorized that there's a kind of chain process that takes place in the performance of an item. Let's say a performer is singing a folk song. Let's say the song is, Old MacDonald Had a Farm. Remember that one? Right? It's a popular kid's song. 
let's say a teacher is singing uh, and uh, with a with a group of first graders before she starts. The idea is that the teacher has a mental text of the song already in her head. Very rarely would she have to have a songbook in front of her when she's singing Old MacDonald. She just knows the song by heart. It's sitting there, sitting inside her head as a mental text. Then, kind of based on her interactions with the audience and with the setting, the teacher is going to start singing <clears throat> out loud a live performed version of the song. After that, a really interesting thing happens. Let's say there's a kid who's listening in the audience. She's going to try to match that, that performed item with their own mental text of the item. Now, let's try an experiment. If I sang Old MacDonald Had a Farm, you're going to automatically, in your head, compare it with your own mental text. You'll say, E-I-E-I-O, right? But how about if I sang Old MacDonald, Old MacDonald Had a Farm? <laughs> you'll be like... What the hell is that? Right? That's not the right way to do it. So what's going on in that example? You're judging my performance as being good or not based on how close my version matches your own mental text of the song. It's actually something that happens automatically. No one ever thinks about it. It just happens. If you like the way I performed it, maybe you'll start performing it the way I did next time. This is how, according to folklorists, variation comes into play as an item travels from person to person to person. Uh, it's due to these variables uh, that go into how a mental text gets articulated as a performed text. It's fascinating, isn't it? Uh, it's an idea that helps us get into another kind of big issue of folklore studies, and this is the question of authenticity. Uh, this is the, whether an item that you find in the wild is a genuine item of folklore or not. Now, <clears throat> you might be sensing this already, uh, but over the years, folklorists have tended to be very interested in collecting and analyzing items of folklore that they feel are genuine parts of an authentic folk tradition. We want to collect real Chinese proverbs, not fake ones, right? We want to collect actual Indian folk songs, not ones that have been invented for Bollywood movies. Why exactly is this emphasis there on authenticity? Well, for one, there's an idea that folklorists are doing something, something important, right? We're recording undocumented traditions, giving them legitimacy, preserving them from dying out. Uh, but maybe there's also kind of a natural conceit involved uh, among folklorists that certain items are pure folklore while other things have been contaminated by pop culture, or maybe they've been sanitized by governmental agencies, that kind of thing. So then what counts as genuine items of folklore? Well, for a long time, uh, folklorists thought of this as being one of two different forms. An item is genuine folklore, then it's either a survival of folk tradition, or it's a revival of a folk tradition. Uh, an item is a survival if uh, it has come down to us through an unbroken chain of transmission with little change of context over the years. Here's an example that you might know, chopsticks, right? The idea is that the custom of eating food with, with chopsticks has traveled around with Chinese communities or with Japanese or Korean communities for hundreds, if not thousands of years in an unbroken chain of transmission. The, trans the tradition doesn't have to be old for it to be unbroken. Uh, even something like this tradition of putting graffiti onto that big E in front of the engineering building on the UBC campus, it's less than 100 years old, but it's had a continuous, 
unbroken chain of being passed down from one student to another at UBC. Same thing with the name for the study room at IK Barber, the Harry Potter room, which we've talked about. Uh, it's an unbroken tradition, but it's about only about like seven or eight years old, I'd say. So, but it's still a survival. Uh, in contrast, there's the idea of a revival of tradition, which is when an item that might have died out for like a generation or two, uh, or maybe even longer, gets consciously revived, recreated by the folk group. Uh, you can see this in the uh, Korean folk drumming called Pungmo, for example. It was a tradition that immigrants to North America had largely abandoned, but that later got re-picked up as a way to kind of create a sense of youth identity, especially uh, through clubs on college campuses. Uh, Bhangra folk dance among Indian communities in Canada worked the same way. It was a dance tradition that had basically died out for a while, but then got revived in the 1980s among youth subcultures in like Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver. Now, according to folklorists, um, <clears throat> or uh, sorry, folklore purists, I should say, true authentic folklore can either be a survival or a revival. And if it's not one of these, then it's inauthentic. It's fake. Right? And good folklorists should stay away. But there's some problems with this kind of purist position and repudi repudiation of the fake stuff, which we're going to talk about in more detail next week uh, when we turn to the question of hybrid forms of folklore. I'll just leave this to you as a little teaser, the way that we can stop thinking about whether a piece of folklore is or is not authentic or inauthentic or fake or real, uh, and actually just to appreciate its hybridity with other kinds of cultures, is to start thinking more carefully about performance. We'll, we'll be digging into that more next week, but for now, let's stop here, take a breath, stretch out, and you're now free to roam about the cabin, as the saying goes. Keep your eyes open and your ears peeled. Maybe it's your ears open and your eyes peeled. I don't know. Uh, for folk culture all around you, whether it's authentic or inauthentic, hybrid, uh, so on. Uh, and thanks for watching, and I'll see you next time.